Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Korean Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Leslie Hickman, one of the channel's hosts. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Chu Yun Oh about her book, K-Pop Dance, Fandoming Yourself on Social Media. Dr. Oh is a dancer, a Fulbright scholar, the CEO of Onit's Lab, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, forgive me, um, and Associate Professor of Dance Theory and Practice at San Diego State University. She developed the first K-pop dance theory and practice courses in the U.S. and has received recognition for her scholarship, choreography, and performance activism. Dr. Oh, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us more about your background and how you came to write this book. My name is Chuyan Oh. I'm an associate professor of dance theory and practice at San Diego State University. I wrote the book K-pop dance, which became Amazon New Release bestseller last year. And I owe my gratitude to K-pop cover dancers I met who gave me a reason to write this book. So I could maybe trace back to around 2015 when I was a visiting assistant professor at Hamilton College in New York, where I worked with a group of K-pop dancers, and they were teenagers as well as refugees from Thailand. So those process of working with um, K-pop cover dancers who have unique cultural background taught me that there is more we can learn from the K-pop dance phenomenon. And their story is included in the last chapter of the book. Okay, thank you. We will talk about them during the interview. But my first question, um, I want to ask you about the title, Fandoming Yourself. Could you explain the meaning behind the expression Fandoming Yourself and then why you chose that as your title? Right. So as I explained in the introduction, I first got this idea um, from my mother, who used to be a professional singer and dancer, because I grew up watching her black and white photos performing on stage. And I think my trajectory as a scholar and dancer sort of resonated with my mother's career which means I have grown to be like my mother because she was my inspiration. And um, that was sort of a similar instinct and even desire that I discovered working with K-pop cover dancers because when it comes to K-pop cover dance, that refers to a fan-made music video where dancers replicate the original K-pop choreography, music, lyrics, and even makeup, Um, all the ideas seem to be replicating the existing choreography to look like K-pop idols. But I think throughout this process, um, especially for dancers, we learn by imitating other dancers we look up. So I think as I've grown into a scholar in dancers, um, imitating my parents, I think K-pop band and cover dancers also imitate K-pop idols up to the point they become a fan of themselves beyond the fandoming idols. Thank you. Yes. So you began your book by explaining social media dance and the history of K-pop dance. Could you describe the relationship between K-pop dance and social media? 
Sure. So K-pop, as I theorized in the book, exemplify, exemplify what I call the social media dance. So social media dance refers to any type of dance that is happening on social media, made for social media and circulated through social media. One of the examples can be TikTok dance challenge that consists of a lot of upper body movement and relatively short, maybe up to 15 seconds. So K-pop started, of course, in um, as a part of music program, but nowadays it is mostly circulated on social media, such as Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. And those choreography and also choreographers are fully aware of the social media as the stage. So all these choreographic characteristics aim to um, better distribute through social media. And that's where I came up with gestural point choreography. That means a lot of styles, especially dance on social media, it highlights the upper body, including detailed facial expression, the use of your hair, um, gesture, and all the delicate movements of the fingers. That all consists gesture point choreography. So I think the relation between social media dance and K-pop is that K-pop signifies um, how the global audience and users are driven toward the social media and how the unique characteristics of social media itself as a stage directly influence our understanding of dance. Yes, I see many K-pop dancers and K-pop dances come on social media. I think the first one I saw um, was actually Zico's, oh, what was it called? But Zico had a dance where it was a social media challenge a few years ago. And I remember that one. I think I did that one too, but yeah, we don't need to talk about that. And <laughs> so you dedicate a chapter to BTS and their, their evolving choreography, co- focusing on three of their songs. So I wanted to ask you, what, where does BTS's choreography situate itself within K-pop and the greater narrative of dance? Hmm. So one of the chapters explain BTS as exemplary figures. Um, and the chapter categorized BTS into three. One is modern dancer. Um, the other one is male dancers as warrior based on dance history. And then the last category is traditional Korean folk dancer. And I draw examples from at least three different music video and live stage. So one of the reasons why I dedicated one chapter to BTS is that they demonstrate, first of all, how K-pop idols and singers have grown into professional dancers over the years, right? Because not all members are in charge of dance. Some of them are more talented in writing a song or rap music and some other areas. But up to a certain point, every single member of BTS became like a professional dancer. And some of the evidence that I draw as a dance scholar is that how they are performing um, 
with bare feet, like not wearing any dancer shoes. And that technically means a lot. Like, I don't remember if I bring this example in the book, but dancing without any shoes, it's like a, you are on television screen without wearing a makeup. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, because it's vulnerably exposed every single movement and fit movement is the foundation mm -hmm. it's a foundation and without shoes they do not have any protection even if they wiggle a toe the audience can see it the audience can recognize it and there's a lot of friction between fit movement and the follower so they have to manipulate and control and navigate their entire movement much smoother way without shoes um, and I also draw a little more professional um, concept from dance theory, such as modern dance, how it symbolizes both aesthetically and culturally, and how BTS is resonating with those modern dance philosophies, such as freedom and also self-expression. The second category, the male dancer as warriors, also focus on BTS because they are all male dancers. And some of their music videos sort of resonate with the um, energetic masculinity that has been used throughout history, especially in a ritual. Um, so before modern era, people utilized dance before they, they are going to a war. So it was like a warming up exercise, but at the same time, cheering up as a group mm -hmm. because there's a, like a hormone when you're dancing together. I saw some of those ritualistic elements in BTS's choreography that can be traced back to way longer um, beyond the modern era. The last category is K-pop folk dancer and my case study in particular was Jimin who's been trained in Korean folk dance, modern dance as well as contemporary dance. So I think what Jimin and, and Suga also released an album, Techita, that integrated a lot of traditional Korean aesthetics and symbols. So I think they are um, sort of creating such an exciting performance music and dance that integrate Western music, including African-American music and dance, and also South Korean traditional music and dance. Thank you. Yeah, it was very interesting to see these BTS songs and dances in a new light. I watched them again after I read the chapter. Um, so moving on to the next question, a main theme in your book is identity passing. Could you explain this concept and the role it plays in how K-pop fans perceive themselves and the idols they admire? Right, so identity passing originally developed mostly in African-American studies and cultural studies. Um, it's been used to describe largely the sort of racial identity passing between white and black, mostly, not always. Um, that means there's a little bit of um, social and racial implications, such as like a, um, there could be African-American teenager who speak like a quote-unquote white girl or the other way. And in that case, they are maybe unknowingly 
performing a different racial identity. And there should be some reasons whether they notice it or not. But I'm using identity passing in my book, not just limited to black and white racial paradigm, but also including Asian and Asian American. Because what's unique about K-pop fandom in the United States, K-pop has been beloved by ethnic minority in addition to mainstream society, including Asian American population. And in many cases, I would find fewer Korean, if not at all. So Korean and Korean Americans' visibility, it's not high. Like I'm teaching the first K-pop dance theory class at SDSU. Um, today was my second day. I already love my students. I have like 70 students, but I think only a few of them would be Korean. I can say that like only a few would be Korean American or Korean. So in that case, there is actually identity passing across the same race, like Asian race, but their ethnicity or citizenship would be different. That could include Chinese, American, or Japanese in Japan. So there's a different citizenship, location, racial, and ethnic identities. So I was trying to better understand how a college K-pop dancer, let's say Vietnamese American, doing K-pop cover dance, how they feel like when they are doing K-pop cover dance, when they speak and sing the lyrics in Korean and dressed up, also wearing makeup inspired by K-pop idols. So one of the chapters dedicates its analysis to identity passing, interviewing a couple of K-pop dancers in Southern California, largely Asian American. And one of the conclusions that I drew is that many of the dancers create their own authentic identity through the process of using K-pop. And I think that, again, goes to how they are utilizing K-pop to be um, fandoming themselves on stage. I remember I went to see a K-pop cover dance contest at a university in the Missouri uh, last summer, I think. And I also was struck by like how different the performers were, but they seemed to be using K-pop to sort of share their identity. Um, but it was like the avenue by which they were sharing different parts of themselves, like their unique selves. And so that was really interesting for me. Um, for the next question, you said, um, or you highlight some K-pop cover dance clubs on U.S. campus who had few to no Koreans, just like you said. And so what does this really mean for the term K-pop or other K-contents when there are not that many Koreans or Korean Americans taking part outside of Korea? Um, what is the K in K-pop generally? Mm. So in general, K in K-pop means Korea, but like a culturally um it may include or it gives us a different channel to interpret this global phenomenon. So K-pop is mainstream culture in South Korea, of course, dominated by and running by Korean companies, Korean choreographers and um, singer-songwriters, dancers and teachers. But in the United States, it is way more popular, in my understanding, too, um, than 
how Korean or Korean American perceive K-pop. Sometimes Korean American are not that inter- even interested in K-pop. Um, so I think the ways they feel it, it's it's quite different. The temperature is quite different. So, but I think what K um, teaches us is that how an ethnic music and dance that started in South Korea can be globalized. So as I wrote in the book, K-pop dance at this point is de-ethnicized as if you don't have to be a Russian to be a ballet dancer or you don't have to be an Italian or a French to be a ballet dancer because these three are the country that contributed the most to the, um, the ballet history. So there is a de-ethnicization but at the same time, the next question is then um, how we can understand Korean identities, both in Korea, in the K-pop industry, as well as in the United States, largely consumed by non-Korean. So I think it teaches us quite interesting, it opens up quite interesting Question And I think this is something that I'm still trying to grapple, uh, figure out. Because of social media, the binary or the boundary between Asian American and Asian becomes even more blurry. Like, for example, my students wouldn't know whether I'm Asian American or Korean. I am Korean. I still have Korean citizenship. Um And it is even more tricky because a lot of K-pop idols speak English in an interview because they prepare. (laughs) And there's usually a couple members who speak English, but still largely most of the K-pop idols do not speak English. So it gives almost like a not false because they do speak English. Some of the K-pop idols like um, born in Canada or in the United States. So it gives almost like a, um, slippery identity as if they are Asian American. Although they include Asian American, but it is largely Korean. So I think social media is one thing, as well as the global exchange of education. Like m- many of the talented dancers, let's say from Thailand, Japan, or China, they go to Korea to become K pop idols. And then the identity become even more um, complicated when they debut. So I think um, I like the question of what K is because the identity of K keeps evolving to some extent. Mm. I wonder also about the identity passing that might happen between Koreans um, who are not Korean American, but they speak English and they're almost in a way, it feels like it's identity passing as Korean American. I don't know if you would agree, but in my, um, that thought occurred to me as we were, as you were speaking. Yeah, that happens too. I, I, I think you're right. You're definitely right. Especially one of the earlier generation of K-pop idol or the like K-pop singers in the 1980s and 90s, they were actually Korean American who re-immigrated to Korea. And the style they created inspired a lot of Korean. So a lot of Korean tried to look like or speak like a Korean American through some lyrics or even rap music 
So I think there's a both the ways of identity passing. Wow, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, we should move on to the next question. Um, so many of your informants asserted that K-pop dance is, quote, open to all, yet different cover dancers possess unequal access to resources and opportunities, as you illustrated through the experiences of Olivia, Emily, and refugee teens, which you mentioned earlier. In what ways are your informants equally impact, but impacted by cover dance? And in what ways do their experiences with cover dance differ? Mm. That's a great question. I think as long as they have the internet, although their search results might be affected by AI, but um, as long as they have the internet, we can say that they would have relatively equal access to K-pop cover dance video or the original music videos. But what makes K-pop bands different from other, let's say, American music band? They perform. They are really creative and they are not hesitant to be a dancer on from TikTok to YouTube tutorial or Instagram reels. And that's the moment um, where what you already have impact what you produce. So it's the level of production. Like, for example, um, a lot of prestigious universities in Southern California, let's say UCLA, UC San Diego, UC Berkeley, um, University of Southern California, just to name a few, have some of the biggest K-pop bands team, right? And um, I've interviewed some of the seniors who have already graduated, and many of them, thankfully, have a lot of resources, a lot of resources. Sometimes they can even use the dance studio from the department. They have secured funding because the university itself has a lot of funding um, and also they can use nice facilities, let's say from communication studies building, they can use the filming facility. So those resources are already given to those un- university students. But on the other hand, even if there is a dancer who is equally talented, but if those dancers do not have those infrastructure. Let's say they are not attending any university. They are attending a university, but there's no diversity or lack of um, infrastructure or facilities. Or maybe those students have financial difficulty because they have to pay tuition or they might be, quote unquote, breadwinner of their household. And all those social circumstances, in fact, directly affect the final outcome of their cover dance video. Because simply put, you don't have many friends who can help you for video editing, or you cannot rent an expensive camera, for example. So I think um, although K-pop dance opens a little more equal opportunity compared to other styles of dance education, because the production value relies on social media, it's quite capitalistic model because the more money you spend, the better quality you get when it comes to social media and YouTube. So I think that's um, something that as a scholar, we can further discuss because otherwise you might assume that, oh, these dancers are more talented 
And those group of dancers have less talent, but maybe it's not the case. We need to look at a little deeper how the societal resources affect their final performance. I see. Thank you for your answer. My next question is, through your research, you met someone named Aelin, a young white woman who was interested in Japan and Korea, and she spoke to you about her experience dancing the K-pop in Japan. What does her account reflect about power, race, and entitlement in the cover dance realm? And does cover dance have the ability to transform these uh, attitudes and hegemonic structures? Mm. Um, I think her case was um, inspirational to some extent because she went to Japan um, and it was quite common that she often not necessarily confused but sort of um, using Korea Japan same ways as if it's almost like the same country it is geographically close proximate and also culturally they share a lot of things but because of the colonial history of um, South Korea um, some of the comments that she shared wouldn't be agreed with Korean in South Korea. But of course, she's not Korean growing up in South Korea, so it is nearly impossible to get those cultural sense, the sensibility, right? Um, but I think what I noticed was the, um, the, the, the almost like really challenging level of understanding culture understanding culture because and, and I at the end I also reflected my own insight as a someone who came to the United States imagining that all the women would look like a Victoria's Secret model 10 years ago I know it was so silly but the only only the only information or the images that I had is like a, something portrayed in mainstream media right so although K-pop is a little more diverse because it's relying on social media, those understanding is mediated, sometimes more glamorous, sometimes more exciting. But the reality may not be that glamorous. And I think her story taught us, um, you know, that there's a lot of posts on Instagram, like how it's portrayed on Instagram versus how it's being real. <laughs> like it, it's about like a tourism post, like a tourism photos. So I think it opens up. Um, in fact, not everything is that glamorous, although it looks quite beautiful and enchanting on social media. So I think her case teaches us the limitations of social media or social media driven learning. But at the same time, I wanted to applaud her actual decision going to Japan and even trying to get a job in that country because I think it's a big move, right? There's a lot of people enjoying American pop music and movie, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily come to the United States and study American film, right? So it's a big gap. I'm hoping to interview some of the students that I interviewed. And I, I, I will be likely interview one of the dancers participating in the first book for my upcoming second book, which is about K-pop dance education. Because over the years, I was so happy to see their growth 
they, how they've been growing as a college university student who just studied their cover dance group. Um, yeah, so I like to maybe conduct some follow-up interviews. Um, yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, yeah, I'll be looking forward to that that book. And also with um, Aylin's story, um, I r- recognized a lot of myself in what she went through as a, someone from the United States who became interested in K-pop and then now live in South Korea. So um, I really appreciated your, your insight into her story and um, how she's changing her relationship um, with Korea while uh, interacting with it. So Yes, thank you for your answer. So my next question is that you write that dance acts as a site where marginalized individuals dream of alternative lives. How does K-pop cover dance enable individuals to dream of different lives? And do those dreams bring about real change in the dancers' lives? Mm -hmm. That's one of the questions that I personally love to ask all the time, but that is the question that I do not have an answer. And I don't think I will be able to have an answer, but um, so I've been teaching not just K-pop dance theory, but also practice class. Like, for example, the California State University summer art that happened last month, I invited K-pop idol for a master class, and students also got a K-pop creator certificate from my research lab. Um, we had around 26 students who came from all across the United States. And I found a similar trajectory as I found when I was writing the book. Um, it is the fact that, not necessarily the fact, but there is a tendency. Um, students who have less resources, have a bigger dream, that means to become a K-pop idols. That means if a student already has everything, let's say she is attending one of the top university in the United States and studying business, it is undoubtedly that she's gonna get a great job, even maybe even before graduation. Um, but let's say students who are attending community college or not get a chance or didn't go to college, they have way stronger and even more concrete plan to apply or to audition to become a K-pop idols. I would say one of the reasons is that K-pop shows um, such a shiny stage, right? If you become a K-pop idol, you could be one of the richest and youngest Um, artists in the world um, within a second. Um, And at the same time, it is sort of departed from conventional education. Having said that you don't have to be a graduate of Juilliard School to be a K-pop dancer. So I think it gives a feeling that maybe I could be one of the K-pop idol, right? Um, But one thing I have also noticed working both in the United States and also in South Korea with K-pop agencies, being a K-pop idol is known to be like 0.01%. That is <laughs> that is like the actual number um, debuting as K-pop idols. So it is, in fact, the reality is, in fact, 
almost like as hard as I don't know, maybe becoming a president. <laughs> I don't know about the statistic or the percentage of how many people eventually become a president. So, um, but at the same time, thankfully, because of social media, you do not have to be a K-pop idol to be a K-pop dancer. You could make your own cover dance team. You could create your YouTube channel to teach K-pop. And all those additional opportunities are sort of welcoming dancers who've been um, culturally more marginalized. And that goes back to the title of the book and the concept of fandoming yourself. So you don't have to have anyone else put you on a pedestal because it's available for you to just show your friends and even show um, strangers. It's like, hey, this is what I can do and pay attention to me for these few seconds or minutes. Um, so I've also taken part of that and I think it can be very exciting and freeing for those that time that you get to express yourself. Um, so to save time, we will go to my last question. What's one thing you hope your readers will take away from this book? Mm. I want my readers um, to pay more attention to what's happening behind the spectacular idol stage. Because everyone thinks of K-pop idols, their shiny, beautiful, attractive presence on stage. But I think K-pop idols are only the tip of the iceberg. There is history of people who have made <clears throat> who have made the K-pop that we know today. That include unknown backup dancers who already retired and maybe having difficulty to get a job. There is a um, uncountable number of K-pop cover dancers whose names are just not written anywhere, right? But these are the group of people who make a K-pop, K-pop beyond a music genre. And there's also a group of teachers. Some of them were idols but failed their career, or they were teachers who've been teaching K-pop more than a couple decades. But all these people's and their names are hidden. So I'm hoping that the audience can recognize those hidden labor in a few decades long sweat and also those people's resilience and even pain and excitement. Um, and I'm also hoping that more people start writing about K-pop because without a written document, a music and dance can fade away, fade away anytime. All right. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book and I recommend anyone listening to this episode to go out and buy it or go out and get it from your library um, or ask your library to get it because it was, um, it's very fascinating to read about this um, really amazing phenomenon of K-pop and K-culture. Okay. So Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. O, and we look forward to your future book and other projects. Thanks again and take care. Thank you for inviting me.